Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. This reading is John chapter 6, verse 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him Jesus said to Philip where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do Philip answered him 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little one of his disciples Andrew and Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fuel, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Hi everybody, it's great to see you. My name is, oh I did that wrong, sorry, Howard. <laughs> um, I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel and everyone is welcome in our church family. It's been a great week for us in the life of Westminster Chapel. On Thursday we celebrated the arrival of Baby River um, and wonderfully is now out of intensive care and with mum and dad, so that's fantastic. Praise God for that. Should we give a round of applause? That's just so wonderful. Um, do please keep praying for them. Um, that would be fantastic. We love just the blessing of God um, on us as a church family. We also had an amazing time last Sunday, didn't we? If you were here, um, you would know that this place was pretty fullish with Mike Pilavachi preaching. It was fantastic. And then on Thursday night, it was even fuller with about 500 people. And we hosted London City Missions annual Thanksgiving service, which was 
phenomenal. And we actually got to be a part of that. Myself, Craig, our very own Jerry was sharing his testimony and story as part of that event. And it's great to be working in partnership across the city of London for the gospel and for the good news about Jesus. And we're actually beginning a one-year partnership with London City Mission where we get the benefit of some of their resources, staff team, experience to help us bless many more people in this immediate locality. We'll say more about that in time to come, but you're here. It's the 11th time that we're looking at John's Gospel together, this wonderful series, Amazing Love. Um, And um, today we're at John chapter 6. And we discover that Jesus is really popular at this moment in his ministry. And in many ways, Jesus has always been popular. At this point, it says not once but twice in the passage, there were large crowds following him. Great crowds. About 5,000 men, we estimate something like 20,000 people, men, women, and children, if you count them all together. To give you some idea of the volume of people, that would be like a six-kilometer queue of London double-decker red buses, absolutely packed full, going all the way down for 6,000 meters. That's a huge number of people were wanting to follow Jesus. There was something interesting and special about Jesus. And it's been the same in many ways ever since. Jesus has always been popular. There have been more books and films written about Jesus than anyone else in human history. Even Time magazine ran a cover once about Jesus that said that he is the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the world. And a third of people on this planet today would say, yeah, I follow Jesus. He's always been popular but he's always also been popularly misunderstood. Just take a look at this passage here. We get into verse 15. And these people, they'd seen something of Jesus. Maybe he's the the prophet that Moses had talked about, the one who would, would come to rescue us. But what do they want to do with Jesus? They want to make him king by force. They want him to forcefully topple Roman oppression and their horrible taxation system. They wanted a life of comfort and ease. And are we so different? You know, sometimes I think we want to squeeze Jesus into the selfish mold that we've made for him. Like Aladdin with his lamp, rubbing Jesus. Can I have my three wishes today? Jesus, my own personal PA, can you do this for me? Jesus, can you help me out? Jesus, and it's a misrepresentation of the holy, awesome, almighty God and what he's like. And often if we act like this, like, like trying to take him by force and make him forcefully do things or impose him on other people, they really misunderstand what Christianity is all about. They'll tell you it's just a straitjacket that's imposed on you against your will to make you do stuff, because that's about force, right? And the Crusades would be perhaps one of the worst examples of that. Trying to make Jesus kind of king by force. And it really puts people off the church. And one of the reasons why I think many of us have a sour taste of Christianity, even Christ, is because we've We've heard the church singing the Christian tune, but way out of tune. I'll give you an illustration of this as best I can. Some years back, a friend of mine got me for my birthday tickets to see Shakespeare's The Tempest. 
was really excited about that. Thought it was going to be great. We're going to go to the Globe. It's going to be fantastic. This wonderful building. What, a, what an opportunity. It turned out, though, that he didn't take me to the Globe, but he took me to the Royal Opera House, which was a little bit suspicious of like, okay, Shakespeare, opera, that's unusual for a production of The Tempest, but it was to be sung in the minor key. Yes, sung in the minor key. It was awful. Now you might be thinking like, okay, that's Howard. He doesn't really have an appreciation for the arts. But one of the characters called Ariel, who's like the, the sort of the spirit of the island, comes on wearing a psychedelic vomit kind of patterned leotard and starts singing like this. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sort of like, I can't walk out of this. It's so bad because I'll upset and offend my friend. So I'm just sat This is awful. It's so out of tune. What would Shakespeare say if he could see this production? Oh. And I think the same can be true of the church. I don't want to represent the Christian message or Jesus way out of tune. So it's unbearable for people to hear. Because that's not the message. That's not the heart of God. So how do we, how do we resolve that? How do we make sure we don't drift? How do we ensure that we don't go, go wrong? Or we go back to the original. That's what we're doing in this gospel we go back and we study the original biographies written about Jesus very carefully and in depth to know who is the real Jesus? What's he like, uncorrupted from human traditions and distortions and what other people say about him or what I might want to impose upon him? No, what does is, what is the scriptures say Jesus is really like? What is the Jesus of history, the real Jesus like? Now just a little aside there because you might be thinking, history? Reality, Jesus, isn't this just a fairy tale, a fairy story that people have made up? I used to think that. You can see some illustrations. It's a, it's a popular thing to do to bash the reliability of the scriptures. But I actually encountered Jesus as a law student at Nottingham. So when people told me about about him, I, I went to the some source evidence and I started to read it for myself and is it reliable, is it credible? Forget what these kind of popular people are saying about it. What does what, what the scriptures actually say? And as I did that, I discovered using my legal skills, it's full of eyewitness testimony and information. These biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are credible and reliable. And I'll give you a couple of examples from this passage and it starts with the Sea of Galilee. Now to you, the sea is actually geographically a lake. It's quite obviously a lake. You would get an uh-uh if you answered that in your geography exam. But to the Jews, it was called a sea because it looked like a sea because they hadn't really seen the sea as such because it's them. It was an expansiveness. So actually, here we have an instance of a lake being called a sea. Now, you had to be alive at the time in that context to know that that's what was happened. It's not the Lake of Galilee, it's the Sea of Galilee. Really important eyewitness detail. But then it goes on to qualify it, doesn't it, and say it's also the Sea of Tiberias. Why has it got two names? Well, it's got two names because Herod Antipas wanted to build a city on the Sea of Galilee to honor the Roman emperor of the time who was called Tiberius. He reigned from AD 14 to AD 37. Interesting, because that's the exact times that we're talking about. And so then this sea became known as this kind of well-built city, the Sea of Tiberius. Kind of changed its name. So it had these two names. How would you know that if you're writing hundreds of years later or from a different part of the world, unless you were there, eyewitness information 
eyewitness details. Note as well it says that it begins just about the time of Passover. Did you see that? And then if we go down to verse 10, we'll see that they're able to sit down on the grass because it was green, and the climate by that point, because it was the time coming up to Passover, wasn't so hot as it was later get that it would be all dusty, and the grass, as we saw a few months ago, was just burnt off, and you wouldn't want to sit on that. Eyewitness details, extraordinary. We can trust the reliability of these documents. So much more accurate than we realize. And this passage then shows us Jesus and how he answers five key questions. Five of perhaps the most fundamental questions of life. The first of those is, does God care? Does anyone care? Does anyone see me? Does anyone notice my struggles, my challenges, my disappointments, my frustrations? I believe it's a very real question that's, that's present for people in this room and if you're watching online as well. Does anyone care? In, these, um, in this particular gospel, you, if, well, if you'd read the other three biographies, three gospels about this story, the feeding of the 5,000, you'd be forgiven for sort of reading between the lines and thinking that it was the disciples who took the initiative to approach Jesus about the feeding. But actually, John, who's writing a little bit later, he comes to bring, it's not a contradiction, but a clarification, because actually we see very clearly here that it's Jesus who takes the initiative. He sees the need. He asks Philip the question, where? Where are we going to buy this? And it says in the passage, he asks that question knowing he's going to meet the need, knowing how he's going to meet the need. Jesus saw he understood. He recognized these are people that they're hungry. They have a need that's going to. And he sees your need too. That's the nature of what he's like. That's his heart. You're not missing. You're not missing. You're not unseen. You're not forgotten. You're not unnoticed. He sees you. He cares about you. He knows what your needs are. And he has the ability to meet those needs in an extraordinary way. That's the first point I think this passage tells us. That's why Jesus came. The second question is, where should you look where nothing seems to help? Where do you look? Well, Jesus turns and he asks Philip a question, doesn't he? Where should we buy bread? And it says that it's to test him. And it's slightly cheeky in a way, if I can say that of Jesus, because it's a little bit leading. Now, where, should, where should we buy bread? And he's asking Philip because Philip, we know, would have probably been grown up around this, this area. He, he, might have, he might have known that. So he's asking him to sort of t- test him out a little bit, test his heart, test what's going on. And what does Philip say? Philip basically says, well, if we're going to feed this many people, that's like half a year's salary. In London, roughly speaking, that's like 15,000 pounds. Where are we going to get that money from, Jesus? We don't have that money. Let alone where are enough shops going to be around us at this point where we could spend that money to get enough food? It's impossible. And then Andrew comes along. He's a bit more resourceful. He finds a boy who's got five loaves of bread and, and two fish. But he says, how on earth? It's impossible. How on earth are we ever going to feed all these people with that? That's ridiculous. We can't do it, Jesus. We can't do it. They were looking at a human level. 
They were looking horizontally. And so often we do that. I wonder, where do you look when life gets difficult, when things go a bit hard? Where do you look? Who do you look to? Is it Tony's chocolate? (laughs) Netflix? Binge-watching episodes of whatever to make you feel better? We do all sorts of things. But so often we don't look to Jesus. And if we do look to him like these disciples did, they, they didn't really see him or understand who he really was. Jesus likes to test us sometimes, to grow us and to mature us. And he asks us the question, where are you looking for help? He's asking you that today. Where, where are you looking for provision? Where, where are you looking for security? Where are you going to for these things? And he wants you to see that those things that you're, you want to turn to are utterly help, useless, empty. He wants you to see that that, that impossibility to, to deal with the issues in hand. Where are you looking? Look at that. But so often we're not really looking and seeing Jesus. I had the privilege um, a few weeks back, we went to uh, camping uh, with some friends and uh, it's a beautiful place. We had a campfire at night and I hadn't been out of London for such a long time. I'd forgotten what the stars looked like. You know, no light pollution. And you look up and you just see there's, there's, there's thousands of them different brightness shining and there's this sense of glory above you and the scriptures say don't they that the heavens declare the glory of God day after day they pour out speech about the manifest brilliance of our creator but so often we're not really looking or we live with the equivalent of light pollution distractions and deceptions and all these things going on in our lives and our busyness that sort of covers over, it fogs up our glasses so we can't really see the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. Where are you looking today? Where are you looking? Would you look to Jesus? Would you really look to him? The third question is, I think the question that is probably most common in society today, probably most often on my lips as well. Will I ever be enough? Do I have what it takes? When I counts and matters the most, will I be able to deliver? Will I be ever, ever be enough for this job, my relationships, that friend, my parents? Will I ever be enough for God? And the culture today would say stuff to you like, you're more than enough, don't worry about it. They've written so many books out there, they just come again and again and again. I think I've got a slide of them so you can have a look. You can just see, there's just, there's just an endless amount of stuff there that's telling you outside world, you are enough. And I want to tell you, you're not enough. I want to tell you all that stuff is wrong. It's actually really unhelpful. In fact, if I can use this by way of metaphor, you are the equivalent of five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 20,000 people. 
In fact, you're the very definition of insufficient. <laughs> you're the definition of you, you can't be enough for, for what God needs of you, what the world would want of you. And that's why so often in life you'll have people just, they're upset because you cannot be enough for them. You don't deliver for them. You can't be good enough to help them out and they're getting a bit angry and grumpy with you. Now, I'm not trying to excuse behavior, but they want you to be God, but you can't be God for them in, in, in your life. It's impossible. You're a finite human being. You cannot be enough. But you have a culture that's constantly telling you that you can. And you're in this constant battle of discouragement where Jesus would come and say, just own it. Just accept it. Just agree with him. I'm not enough. I can't do this. It's impossible. I can't save myself. I can't feed all these people. I can't feed all of London. I can't do that. I'm not enough. And the moment that you do that, you start to discover he's more than enough for you. He's more than enough for everyone. It's not about you meeting the need. It's about him meeting the need through you. I think this is something of the significance of them sitting down on the grass. Verse 10. Did you notice that that's what Jesus asked them to do? Now John is deliberately drawing across all of different scriptures in the way that he writes. And so this for me reminds me of Psalm 23. It's the picture of the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. It's almost an echo of Psalm 46. Be still and know, God says, that I am God. I will be exalted. Or Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, where it says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still, sit down, rest, trust the Lord to provide. And when we give him what little we have, he can work miracles with it. He can satisfy the deepest hunger pang in your soul. He fed 20,000 people, but there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Did you notice that? That's more than what they began with, by the way. Maybe that was one, maybe that was half a basket. 12 basketfuls left over. Some commentators say that is a picture of Jesus, God's ability to satisfy the needs of the 12 tribes of his people. And then verse 11 says this, that they had as much as they wanted. This wasn't portion control. It's not like those old days at school or, you know, like you're only allowed this amount of food. This is like you can have as much as you want of this extraordinary banquet. Jesus is being presented as the true and better Moses. We began with an allusion, didn't we? A reference to Passover. This is a great Exodus story of where God had come and he'd rescued his people out of oppression in Egypt and brought them out. So we've got this reference to Passover, haven't we? And then we've got Jesus being described as going up a mountain, not once but twice. The whole passage finishes with him going up a mountain to meet with his father, God, again. Very typical Moses-like behavior. And then this passage will go on and the next story that Phil and Craig are going to pick up next Sunday is this extraordinary supernatural sea crossing where Jesus walks on water. It's a supersized version of going through the Dead Sea. He doesn't have to part the sea, but now he's so almighty, he's going to walk right over it. And then he's feeding them with bread like manna from heaven. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses, but he's not come to simply deal with Roman oppression or Egyptian evil. He comes to deal with what's underneath it. It's a greater, it's a supersized exodus from the very bent of evil itself, the evil in our own hearts, the evil which is there that we all wrestle with, that selfishness. He comes to liberate us from all of that and this extraordinary rescue mission, it's incredible. He's coming to take us from captivity into glorious freedom with him. Why am I so sure of that? Well, notice verse 14. It says the word sign. That this was a sign. This miracle was a sign. Now, John is very careful in how he uses the word sign. That takes us back to the first sign that Jesus performs, which is in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turns water from ceremonial jars into top-notch wine. A thousand bottles of wine he creates. So we have abundant wine and here we have abundant bread. John is deliberately taking this story. Note, by the way, he doesn't actually include anything about the Last Supper in terms of communion together and the breaking of bread. John talks about the washing of the disciples' feet in that moment. It is here where John institutes the Lord's Supper. And he shows how Jesus takes this Passover meal and he reshapes it to be about communion. The abundance of wine, of his shed blood paying for sins. The abundance of bread, of his broken body atoning for all the wrong things we've said, thought and done. What does he want you to have as much as you want of? It's forgiveness. It's mercy. It's grace. It's that there's no sin that cannot be cleansed. That's his heart. That's what he's demonstrating to us in these miracles. Can you see it? I am a God of unbelievable generosity. So often people find this hard to believe though. I've met someone only this week who would hold that they've committed the unforgivable sin. They would say they've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I can't be forgiven because of what I've done. And I spoke to them and I simply said this. Jesus says that he'll forgive all sins. 70 times 7. John will write in his letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all all unrighteousness so you've got a contradiction you've got to work out what does it mean this unforgivable sin that is willfully resisting the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus as the saviour as God and saying I will not believe that that is a work of Satan I do not trust that that's nonsense that's rubbish to your dying breath you're choosing to say I will not accept Jesus as Lord and saviour that is the unforgivable sin and it's unforgivable because in your will you will never come to Jesus in repentance for it. Do you see? Everything else is forgiven. Everything else. Everything else. So I don't know what that sin is that you would like to believe is in that category. You need to take it out of that category. If the Lord is working on your heart, you can be forgiven. You can be restored back into right relationship with him. Because what he offers is incredibly precious. I notice in verse 12 that he made sure all of the bread was collected up. It says 
that none might be wasted. That none might be wasted. Now when we think about that in terms of his shed blood and his broken body, it takes on a different significance, doesn't it? That none might be wasted. That none might be dishonored. That it might not be taken for granted. That we would consider it extraordinarily precious. The next question is, how can I know? How can you know um, this experience? How can you know the forgiveness of God? How can you know his presence and his power and his forgiveness and his joy? How do you experience that for the first time or again and again? Well, it's about trust, isn't it? The boy had to trust Jesus. He came prepared. He potentially was going to have no lunch because he was going to give everything he had away, his five loaves and his, his two fish. They were going to go. But he had to trust Jesus that he would get fed and everybody would get fed with that. The disciples had to do the same. If you read the other accounts, like Matthew chapter 14 and verse 19, it seems to suggest that the miracle happened in the disciples' hands as they distributed the bread. So it wasn't like Jesus is like, the miracle's over here, making this huge surplus pile, and now you folks, you go over this way, and you're kind of going to do... They, they had, there was a moment of faith for them. They took what Jesus gave them, and to that little the group of people, then there was enough, and it multiplied right in front of their eyes. This is an extraordinary. They, they saw the miracle. They had to go to these people and say, I don't have enough bread here, but it will be enough by the time you consume it. There was an act of faith, an act of trust, dependency. And this is what happens in the Christian life. You want to know what it's like to walk with God by faith. You've got to go by faith for God. I love the way John Ortberg puts it. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. If you want to see his power, if you want to enjoy his presence, you've got to radically trust him with your life and the way that you live. And if we don't, well, it might be just a bit more of a boring ride. You know, disappointing, not quite as exciting, and a lot less encounter of the nature and character of God. How could we do this as a church? Well, it's stepping out, isn't it, to share your faith with someone. Will you get rejected? Yes, sometimes, but sometimes you won't. It's about sharing a prophetic word of encouragement we've got space to do that later in this service we were encouraged last Sunday evening by Mike Pilavarchi it's amazing someone said to me he's probably top three most influential Christians in the United Kingdom still alive and he gave some examples of some amazing words that the names of individuals who didn't yet know Christ calling them out and then he gave a story of an incredible failure where he got it wrong <laughs> And the only way that he could ever work out which was which was because he trusted God and he stepped out in faith and he knew through that act of obedience. How about you? How about you? Are you willing to step out of the boat? Do you want to experience walking on water? Then you need to take a step of faith and trust. Trust God with your time. Trust God with your money. Trust God with your relationships. Trust godly leaders in your life. The final question is, how then should I live? How then should we live? Well, not with a scarcity mindset, but a generous disposition. 
Why? Because we have as much of we, as we want of what really matters. His love, his grace, his forgiveness, his acceptance. We're not in competition with the people outside us, around us, even in this room. We have every spiritual blessing through our faith in Jesus Christ. How then should we live? Well, we're not going to live with a um, selfish attitude, but a servant heart. We're called to give generously, not to hoard what we have. We've got to be like this boy. We've got to trust the Lord with the little that we have, even though losing that might be a major challenge for us. And then finally... How do we live? We live not with control or force or coercion, but sacrificial love. It's the way of Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. He did not come to take life, but to give life. And he radically invites his followers to do the same. To understand that we are safe for eternity, for eternity we're saved. And therefore, because of that, we can do radical things for him. My dad recently, he lent me um, a book um, to read. It's called Black Gold by Jeremy Paxman. It's about how um, the history of how coal, black, black gold, made Britain. And it's a, a fascinating read. Jeremy Paxman, he's not especially a, um, a fan of Christians or Christianity, but in the opening few pages, there's an extraordinary story that really spoke to me. He begins by talking about a tragedy, a cold tragedy in a mining pit, where unfortunately there was only one sort of accessible pit sort of location with a lift and the air going all the way down, up and down through that and a lift. And eight men were coming up out of this lift and about halfway up the lift, the the, the pump that was generating the power to pull the lift up broke and there was sort of a, a, a huge crash and a shattering as this lift started to fall down the shaft. Four men immediately are thrown out to their death. The others become sort of lodged and trapped in this um, cage lift that they were coming up in. 204 men and boys are trapped below. The, the worst point, because all the shift turnover had to happen underground because it was cheaper and saved more money than happening above ground. That's why there was only one pit shaft. There was only one way in, and it was blocked. And then we come to, to read this. After the initial paralysis caused by the shock, men on the surface at Hartley began quickly to organize rescue efforts. By midnight, rescuers had clambered down and reached the cage where George Sharp, though badly injured, was saying that he wanted to climb down to help his son, young George, whom he could hear lying injured and moaning on the rockfall below. One of the rescuers put a sling around the old man, but as he was being lowered, he struck an overhanging piece of timber, was knocked from the sling and plunged to his death. He hit the ground a few feet away from where his son had fallen. Two other men from the cage were retrieved successfully, but the most heroic act that day, the most heroic act that day 
came from Thomas Watson, a recent convert to primitive Methodism, i.e. a Christian who had himself lowered into the darkness and stayed with the wounded men on a pile of debris partway down the shaft, leading them in prayers and hymn singing until they died. Watson was the last man to be brought to the surface alive. What an echo of the ministry of Jesus, who was lowered down, had himself lowered down from heaven, having heard the cries of those of us who struggle and wrestle with all the horrors of sin. But Jesus is so much better because he brings us up out alive with him. You can't get away from this witness. This is the story of redemption. And it's the story that most moves and touches our hearts. And it's the story we're invited to live and act out as followers of Jesus. Knowing that God cares about us. He sees us. Knowing that when we look to him, we see everything that we need. That we, we aren't enough, but he's enough. And so we walk by faith and we trust him. And we do what the scriptures encourage us to do. Therefore, because of the mercy of God upon our lives, that we've been saved from death, we've been saved from hell, we've been saved from eternal judgment, we've been saved from facing what we deserve, the justice and judgment for our own sins. Because of that mercy, we then present our bodies as a living sacrifice because that is our spiritual act of worship. There aren't just 204 people who are about to die crying out for mercy in a pit in the city of London. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are struggling and wrestling. And unless we allow ourselves to be lowered into their lives, into their homes, into their streets, into their contexts, they're not going to hear the good news about Jesus. So let's go. Let's carry his love and his mercy and his grace with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you came. Lord, you were lowered down by the Father and by your will into the pit of this sinful planet that turned against you, that went rogue, rebellious and evil and Lord, we recognize that we're all tainted with that. We've all turned against you in some way. But you came not to judge, but you came in mercy to rescue and to save all who would turn and look to you. God, help us to look to you. Jesus, open our eyes to see you more clearly. Help us not to look horizontally to the things of earth, but help us to look up to the things of heaven and to see the awesome, almighty, all-creating Savior. Lord, we thank you that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Lord, we thank you that you privilege us to feast on the very word of God himself, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know your forgiveness. Help us to know your mercy. Help us to know your grace. Help us to know that you are enough 
for all that we truly and deeply need. In your name we pray. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.